0: But I was looking for a place to compost, which I said yesterday in the talk, it's not so easy. To a lot of curators, it wasn't clear what this would be. It was too complicated. Um, some curators said you can't. They said, oh, it's interesting, but you would bring references to so many other things. It's too complex. And Elvira didn't think that, fortunately. And then the logistics were that um, I emptied my studio I still had a studio at the time, a collective studio. And I brought it all to the showroom. And of course, in the running up to this exhibition compost, we were thinking about what are all the things we can... What are all the materials, things that are left we have access to? I mean, there was like practical logistics. Um, But basically, it was then three trucks with the things I have left. It's just what remains in my... like within my space. So it was books, furniture... Recordings, slides, photos, posters, objects—just um, like physical remains that I happen to have. And we always try to make it clear that, of course, the practice is much bigger. And you know, there's like permanent installations in museums, there's permanent shops in villages. So that's not what's left from the work; just what I had left. And then the showroom is a kind of—it was an industrial site, so it feels like a big garage. And it has this really wonderful big shutter, so it's a bit like you open like a big space and then you put this stuff in. And it was still Corona, so we had to think a little bit about how many people can be in the space and the flow. So, you know, it wasn't just piling it up, it was organizing it also so it could become accessible and we could have people in the space. So we used the material from the previous show to build like shelves, furniture, to organize the piles a little bit. There would be one big table that also kind of crossed out into the street. It like left the gallery and went, went on the pavement. And it looked like a shop and a lot of material from different trading projects were there. Um, there was a big tower with posters. There were shelves with books. Um, there was a private area for... Um, archiving like, and, and, and kind of digitizing um, and there, there were different different display systems and the big poster wall so it was organized it, um, but the organization was m- mainly to allow people who have nothing to do, walk in and out, nothing about what's happening to actually touch things, to use things, to take things and that's what happened. So the, the composting, the reducing the pile didn't happen through destruction or rotting. Um but through change in usership of the objects, so over the duration of those twelve weeks, the objects would be talked about, you know, also in this editorial sense of what is it? what is it for? What, it, what does it come, where does it come from? But also what could it be? And this what could it be then dissolve the pile. So things were swapped, taken somewhere else. And at the end, the, the gallery was literally empty. I said from the beginning I would like to keep the books, um, and that's what I did.
1: Catherine Baum's practice spans several decades and branches out in many directions, constantly in dialogue with others she approaches her field of action from a social perspective while very consciously situating herself on the margins of the art market and of the white cube in order to explore other ways of understanding the economy in relationality. Predisposed to communal and practical thinking, Catherine has concentrated her efforts on the co-production of many and varied organizational forms, focusing on issues such as the usership and utility of art on different fronts and by means of different strategies. A long list of initiatives, communities, and even companies under a variety of names and constellations serve as relational experiments and exercises in shared learning that involve understanding culture as an everyday practice that can be found everywhere. In this podcast, we open up a glossary of concepts that affect and leave their mark on Catherine Baum's many constellations and collective projects. From the notion of compost, which triggered a radical shift in her way of working and interacting with her material archive in recent years, to a reassessment of the very idea of the economy, which, as Catherine Gibson highlights, helps us discern spaces of value production that are not immediately apparent. We talk about how these other strategies and ways of doing things lead us to qualify and problematize alternative ways of understanding social and or participatory practices, and even to read the idea of community critically.
0: I, or we, Like, if I say we, I mainly mean my villages, the collective I'm part of. But also, I often try to find a name for the work that's quite everyday and quite understandable. So with my villages, we run an economatic school, we run a shop, I run a company. So words, where when you encounter them, you have some idea of what your relationship might be. And then it might be a different relationship. So when I was thinking about how to call this, like, you could call it retrospective, which I didn't want to use because it was too formal. Um, So I was trying to find a word that I also could feel was the right word for piling something up in a... with purpose, but without order. Um, Not random, but specific. And then, of course, the word... um, Compost has been used by many, many others, but as a kind of image and as a spatial thing, it was the right term for what I wanted to do. And then, of course, if you bring a compost to a gallery, you picture somehow material that will transform into something else. Also, during compost, we did a recording with other colleagues who used the word compost, Um, just to also share it as a word, you know, it's a... It's not a word I would claim, it's used by so many others. But compost was really to evoke um, a sense of materiality and transformation. And then the misunderstanding that people thought, I wanted to get rid of my work, of course not. You know, a gardener wouldn't make compost to get rid of the garden. You make compost to think about the next season. we happened to be in a working group that was called composting knowledge so this is really a complete coincidence huh? of course we were in conversation with Lumbung during compost but composting knowledge was a co- it's a coincidence in terms of the same using the same language but of course with the same intention of learning together towards producing some fertilizer or shared knowledge without a clear process without but with a process through of trust, which, I mean, was one of the main values of Lumbung, trust and friendship. Um, and there, my villages, um, we brought in our practice um, as a group of artists who are interested in the rural, um, as a set of knowledge, as a mindset, as a geography, as a, as a history. And we worked with four local groups in Kassel to look at rural undercurrents, And then brought this work and those findings back into this um, composting knowledge group. We also wrote, we also left the composting knowledge group at some point. It's good because we just had our 20th anniversary, my villages, so we're in complete reflection mode and planning. I think with the rural, and we want to be very clear, that it's not to reinforce a binary between, you know, it, I think in all of our practice, even if we use quite terms that come from binary thinking, it's not to enforce binary. I think that's the same as company, you know, it's not to enforce um, community over company, but it's to see all the different possibilities in between. And with the rural, um, it has an autobiographic background, but th- that has faded now, you know, that was the that was the in- initial moment of my villages. That is three artists who all grew up in rural, very different rural situations. You know, the rural is never the same. like the farm Babke grew up in dairy farm, she grew up in Friesland. It's very different to my village, even though it's both in Europe. So we mainly also talk about the rural within Europe because we understand this better. And we also know that the term rural doesn't apply to any cultural context. And this binary, also, we want to keep it with, within the European context because we understand it better. Um, so it was this like observation of, if you want to do art, you leave you leave the village. You have to leave the village. There's no art academies. You also want to leave the village. Because there's things you absolutely can't stand anymore, yeah. like in my case, um, patriarchy to a degree that's unbearable. Um, a certain conservatism where you want to get away from. So rec- recognizing the need to leave or the desire to leave, but also recognizing the need to, le- to go to the city in order to study art. And then once you're there, all the other infrastructures are there. You know, it's where residences are offered, where you publish, where the galleries are, where everybody is. So from this autobiographic position in like 2001, when we started discussing it, it was like, why, why don't we consider our home villages, places to work? If we consider our practice as socially engaged, why is the rural excluded from this practice? So it was quite a practical question to ourselves, but it also became a Curatorial and conceptual question. Um, and absolutely nobody was interested in the rural. You know, like if you say the rural, i was like, it's almost like, can't believe you just said this word. So we thought, oh, sod it, we self organize, we can this. You know, we don't rely, as artists, we don't rely on institutions to give us platforms. We can create this ourselves. We know that. So that was the initial kind of energy and critique and self observation. And then, of course, over the years, it has grown into. Something much bigger, my village is, I think, like the text we write now, and if someone wants to read the rural or economatic school, quite happy to share those PDFs but of course it's a it's a critique towards an assumed cultural production within the city, then an assumed cultural desert within the countryside, you know this like hegemony of of the urban um which of course has to do with power relationships because narratives are normally generated through urban infrastructures. So that's a general critique. And then the other thing we said from the beginning was that at no point did we want to define the rural, but we wanted to pay attention to its particularities, which we knew from our own lived experience that if someone has grown up, there was something we could recognize, not always through naming it, but maybe through... Um, the way we like um, behaved um, or walked or handled things. It, there's a deep understanding that there's something we, a pati- particularity we can recognize about the rural, and that was our interest. And then the way we address it or work around the topic is not always through language, and that's where we come closer to the land and other forms of knowing and sharing. And we try and give a lot of space to that. To um, knowledge being showed and shared about the rural, not through talking, but maybe through making, showing, touching, and then over the years, which has become clearer with um, publishing the rural, this book, um, this reader, I think in two thousand and eighteen. Also, to say that the rural can be a mindset. You know, it's not; it doesn't depend on a geography. Babke did a. Beautiful project but which has informed my villagers a lot about the rural undercurrents in South Rotterdam where she lives. To also say that rural knowledge uh, is also uh, a history of migration. You know, migration from the rural into the city and then the city makes very little space for that. We normally see it in urban gardening. You know, that's where people are like, oh, okay, I can see that you... But that's about it. There's otherwise relatively little cultural space to make the urban knowledge people bring into the city visible and the topic. So that's that's what we're doing. That's what Babke did in Rotterdam with a project called Burensey. And that's what we did in Kassel um, during Documenta with rural undercurrents. And that's what the Rural School of Economics is about, to look at knowledge that's associate that's connected to rural heritage or history or setting I live in London. No, I don't live in my home village. Um. And I think that's that's part of the discussion we want as my villages, of course. It's not an either-or. And that's why I'm saying I'm and that's an ext- that's a privilege, you know, that you have that you can claim pl- two places your your own. Um but it's also not to falling into the trap of, oh, where's it better? Is London better? or who'm like, pfft, but it's it's I think it's also acknowledging that of course there are things in the urban that we as artists are really happy to have you know um spaces that are we've never ex- we don't experience in the rural situations we come from you know all like those safe spaces for being other or wanting something different and um, so I think that it really has to be acknowledged um we also want to acknowledge that, the city produces a lot of value for us as artists. No, you know the the credits that come with having exhibition, all of that. But it still doesn't mean that we can't think about rural infrastructures as well. It doesn't mean that we can't think about the rural as a place for contemporary cultural production. And I am uh, coming back to the Rem Koolhaas exhibition. I was suddenly just like, ah, it's always so annoying. So Rem Koolhaas announced, you know, when was it, twenty fifteen? That it was the peak where more than half of the world population started to live in cities. So that was used as this, look, the world is becoming urban. And of course, that was a completely wrong statement because a lot of migration into cities is forced migration. You know, it's not that suddenly everybody wants to live in metropolis. No. Um, Also, the non-rural areas are not the kind of urban areas we have in our mind. You know, they're like vast Spreads of places without infrastructure where people are forced to live. Um, so we also wanted to ca- counter, ha- have a counter narrative to this. Oh yeah, society is moving towards an urban future, which isn't true. It's a British anarchist architect writer, Colin Watts, and he very early on wrote about the child in the city, the child in the countryside, and he, and I mean says clearly that, of course, the middle and the upper class has always had access to both, you know, like... And that's, at least in Europe, that's quite... True. Like, in Russia, people have their dacha, you know, in Germany, people have their second home. So acknowledging that access to both is actually of value and shouldn't be a privilege that's associated to class, but, you know, should be opened up. So also to defer this either or, because both 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 have values. There's a huge interdependency. But our critique was to ignore the rural um, as a place for cultural discussion and production. And it has changed since the pandemic. uh, Since with the pandemic, a lot of people moving away from cities. I think there's also, there's again this danger that the rural becomes determined by the urban desire of being this refuge and being this green and quiet space, which which it isn't. I mean it can be, but you know, there's lots also stuff happening. As an artistic practice, you know, my posters are not on the mar it's I'm not on the market. Um I mean I live in London, it's not that there. there's a lack of commercial galleries. I just never entered that market, I also didn't want to be in this market. Um, I think you have to be quite determined and then once you're in that market, it takes a lot of energy. Most colleagues I know and I have enough friends, you know, who are in the commercial market, it takes most of your energy. So even though it would be nice to be in both, I know it's in practical terms quite impossible because once you're in that market it demands a lot, you know, it's organized around sales to people with money. Um, so that's a decision not to be in the market. And then there's this essay by Gregory Cholette, The Dark Matter, where he talks about if you're not in the market, doesn't, does it automatically mean you're not successful? No, it doesn't, you know, because also it could be a decision not to be in the market. And I think we need to recognize that and also be much clearer about this with like art students, because I think this fantasy of that you're going to sell your art and make a living. Um, yeah. Is 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 quite romantic. The question of economy has always been quite key, but hasn't been expressed for a long time in the practice. It was for a long time about the rural or spatial production, but of course, in anything you do, you bring values, you negotiate values, you co-produce. You know, it's economies. It's social economies of doing things together. And then um, I came across the, the writing by J.K. Gibson Graham, through Close Friends in Paris, um, Atelier d'Architecture Autochere. And in their book, um, The End of Capitalism But Not As We Know It, they take a different economic language, which it comes from Marxist thinking, but it's not an anti-capitalist language, and it really intrigued me Um, to be able to put yourself in a not anti-capitalist position, but other than capitalist position. So so the language and the thinking of Gibson Graham, which is about recognizing that we live in a kind of economic world that's dominated by capitalism, and then they always use this iceberg image, which quite clearly says, that's what we all can see as economy, that's what is, what's being told to us is economy, like wage, labor, the markets, capitalist economies. But of course, everybody knows that under the waterline, there's all the other value productions, labor, economies that sustain us, but also sustain the capitalist economy. So they talk about acknowledging this diverse diversity of economies, and they talk about capitalocentric. So just recognizing that this is a very dominant um, narrative and practice that tries to like relate everything to itself, you know, like it disempowers us by being being in the center. So their argument is a, a emancipatory one that recognizing ourselves as um, economic subjects, valuing all labor values that are not valued by a capitalist um, economy, but in a very everyday approach. They also published the book Take Back the Economy, which is really quite a practical thing of recognizing yourself as an economic subject, seeing yourself as an iceberg, disagreeing with the dominance and starting to reorganize. With Catherine Gibson, we also talk a lot about interdependence, you know, this impossibility to overthrow capitalism tomorrow. You know, this. we can imagine the end of the world easier than imagining the end of capitalism. So it's also a very pragmatic approach to still think different futures. Um, So for me as an artist, this was a very, for myself, uh, a kind of very liberating position that I could talk about capitalism without talking about being in an anti-position, but in an as-well or other, you know, in a kind of more parallel position. And then with that idea, started to work with economy more within the practice. So I think in 2012... I co-curated an exhibition with Gavin Wade at Eastside Project. It was called Trade Show. And at the time, economy was very present within the arts, but often in a in a more through comments or through critique or through cynicism, but quite discursive. And we wanted to do a show where we showed artists who set up economic systems and principles on their own terms. So there was a shift in my practice to recognize artistic practice also as economic practice. And maybe the main topic can be economics or economy. So that was trade show. And then after that, um, yeah, it became a, a kind of red thread in my work more and more. Um, so then 2013, I set up Company Drinks. Um, as my villages. And I live in London. And there was this strong desire to step away from projects already then, you know, to know that, oh, yeah, maybe you can start something already with the intention of it not being a project, but being a company. And a company you wouldn't start for a year, you know, there would be a pop up. Um, yeah, so I set up, um, I initiated company drinks. Both as my practice of thinking through co-production, value, trade, profits, reinvestment, but also as an actual community drinks enterprise that's still there, which I, you know, would claim as a success. <laughs> Any business that survives more than two years. Um, and it has changed a lot. You know, it's not, there's a lot of a big team. I'm, I'm just one of many voices in company drinks. But this possibility, which I mean, we know, anyway, that you can o- actually organize economies around ethics that are very close to you, even in a very harsh world of people not having money, communities be- being deprived of investment, um, huge inequalities. But still, company drinks is a practice where at least you prove to a degree that it can be done differently, that it's a matter of decision-making and not a necessity that you can't pay, that you deprive and so on. I myself have no market value. But of course, with company drinks, we have a market. You know, we have to think about where do we sell the drinks? What markets do we want to use? And then uh, it's also nice to see how all of this is also like a game and creative, you know, and you can use it to exploit or to support something. And then so with company drinks, um, because we make drinks in bottles and we can talk to specialists, and we had a lot of specialists in the beginning, like, oh, my God, you've got such a unique selling point. I can, can I stock your drinks? And so for a few years, I entered this world of, soft drink wholesale (laughs) and I mean everybody who works with food knows that it's almost impossible to make profit if you have ethical practices. So to come back to the really practical side of this after three years we decided we're not going to go down this route of generating profit by selling bottled drinks because the margins are too small um, and we would have to organize our entire activity around that bottled drink. Um, Also, we would be very, very dependent on big wholesalers or supermarkets, and that's a dependency we didn't want. Um, So those were kind of decisions in terms of market value where we early on introduced two market values, like a local one that reflects the financial ability. So that's lower, you know, it's a pound on euro. We sometimes trade in the art world and then, We clearly say this is for maximum profit. Then we sell up to the absolute maximum we can ask in terms of a product. Um, And that's, of course, it's a funny story. It's not just a funny story. It's also like an ethical business decision to have those two different prices and to be clear where we make money and to also be very clear that we can't make money with the drinks because the way they're made and the way we can sell it for locally, there's just no profit involved. Which doesn't mean we can't make a profit, but we make it more through um, running bars for events or um, s- selling workshops. The assumption of how you make money as a business—we're still so focusing on the commodity, on the product. A lot of businesses don't make money with their product. You know, the money is made through other, through selling other services or running logistics or. Uh, in the background so I think that's also just to say just also take away this um, high expectations that we could run a financially viable community uh, uh, company by selling bottled drinks absolutely impossible you know also talk about the impossibility of a market economy if you have certain ethics Doesn't make you can't make money, but not in this assumed way of, oh, we make drinks and sell them. Because there's other market forces which just don't allow you to charge the money you would have to charge, which we all know, you know, food is too cheap, the labor that went into isn't paid, and so on. I mean, for Compost and the book and in other projects, I publish uh, um, The Balance. And that's also based on the thinking of Graham Gibson. So it distinguishes between financials. And really, I don't want to leave money out at any point because that would be wrong. At the moment, there's a cost of living crisis, you know, there's a real lack of money in many people's lives so we break down the financials like let's say how much the production cost or the making of a bottle cost you know quite clear um, financials then we also have quantifiables which then list like how many people have been involved how many hours you know those things you can also count but are not necessarily monetized and then the less easy to quantify like let's say the the energy people bring to something or the knowledge or the sun that allows the fruit to ripen you know all those things that we depend on and are interdependent with but which are normally not accounted for in spreadsheets and of course those lists are never complete they are symbolic but they explain something about what you acknowledge as the wider economy that allows you to exist and maintain I learned some economic principles from other collectives, which I knew work, and it's not my knowledge, it's just it was knowledge that I had experienced as quite valuable, and that's both from public works, uh, art and architecture collective I co-run for a long time, and my villages, and it's this idea of like um, the shared e- a shared economy within the project or the work, so that everybody gets paid the same, um, equal pay, and generosity. Um, towards everyone, assuming we do what we want to do and can do. Um, So company drinks started with money. You need money. And I think that's also why I regulate published budgets. You know, my work might look very casual, but it costs money. And especially if you want to pay people, it costs a lot of money. So company drinks started with £80,000, which, you know, is a nice pot of money. And we put in the first year 40,000 away for the second year. Um, It started in a neighborhood in London that's not too far away from mine, but not my neighborhood. So the first three or four years, it was purely nomadic. It was moving in this borough. I mean, it's big, you know, it's like eight kilometers long and four, four, four kilometers wide. But like moving in this borough with this invitation of making drinks together, like this production cycle of picking together, making together, trading together and reinvesting together. And of course, it was super abstract in the beginning until we had the first drinks range and until we had the first bar and until it first became visible. So that was the main narrative and kind of common activity in the first years. Um, Then the team grew around it. You know, we are now five people. I really wish... Um, I would have understood community organizing at that point. You know, I came from, and it's a critique towards this practice of participatory art, that the way of, question of organizing um, are not so important. It's more that, like, the, it's, it's again, the project. As long as the project looks good, you somehow organize it, somehow works, and very kind of diffuse language around how it works. A lot to do with my white privilege. Um So after five years, we actually took on a building, we were offered a building. And since then, it's the whole work of Company Drinks is much more focused on the groups and communities who who use and want to share the resources with us. So governance um, making and um, tidying up organizational structures has become more important in the last few years. The principle of equal pay has continued. And it's the decision of the team, you know, the the core team, so the people who make sure things happen and take responsibility for that. We decide on a regular basis if we want to continue with equal pay and it gets reviewed after every two years, so that's still happening. Um, We are trying to pay well, which we still underpay. You know, it's also about recognizing who, how much money do you know, (laughs) Do you have, need to survive or live well? And we still haven't reached that hourly rate, but working towards it. Um, and again, it's not that we have too much money, <laughs> but it's how we organize our money. So we've, we've now put in this like increase of wages every half year if we can afford it, because that's also the reality of things. If you don't have the money, you can't pay more. But you can plan to pay more. As soon as you plan it, it's going to be more likely. And I like those moments, you know, of, um, yeah, organizing the pot of money. But then, of course, within Company Drinks, we communicate a lot that we are not a provider. We are not a charity. You know, we really want to step away from this relationship of, oh, who are neighbourhoods? <laughs> it's just this like, uh, binary of like, who gives and who takes. So, in all events, so in a lot of events, we talk about what, is, what does everybody bring? What do, what do people take? And we publish um, what allows us to exist, which is a diverse economy, a mix between income from sales, grants, contracts, and then not paying rent, in kind contributions, you know, all the kind of. Not easily quantifiable elements, but as a social enterprise, you're quite pushed in this role of benefiting, and I think we really want to sidestep this narrative because we all benefit from whoever is in the space. You know, it's not not to be pushed in the role of benefiting position. I mean, so far we haven't sold an installation into a collection. So I don't know that market value yet. I can only assume. But we have sold the same drink into the fridge in the museum shop. And then I know the, the price. Yeah, It would be nice to also sell an installation once into a collection. This is at the moment just an imagined value. I would say minimum 15000 And then, of course, for everybody who's not in the art world... This is unreal, you know, how the art world can speculate on monetary value in this excessive manner. Which also when I teach, like, because I teach in a business school, that's something that is, this distorted monetary value is still something that everyone is fascinated with in the art world. How a bank sees suddenly 1.2 million, you know, how, how the art world can exaggerate um, monetized value to a degree. Not saying it's right, but it's actually a possibility, you know. So for company drinks, it would be good if our drinks would be on the art market, because it would actually be good financial income. There was a big exhibition at the Victorian Albert Museum, um, called Food Bigger Than the Plate, I think 2017, can't remember. And there was a bar where people could taste the drinks. And then there was a very museum-like vitrine with the drinks on display. And this was just sitting next to each other. And then it's also can, can be quite easily understood that it's both a kind of cultural practice for this kind of cultural value of being a display and going into the collection, but it's also social practice and a kind of entrepreneurial practice of being a bar and you get a drink. And we have, because our bottles are very beautiful, I have to say. Um, we, once, the, once we were in this, like, I mean, I love curators. If you can, if they suddenly start to imagine things. There was an exhibition curated by Rosemary Shirley. It was, it was called Making of the Countryside. Um, so it was like landscape painting. And they showed, it was really beautiful, just our bottles next to each other. Because, of course, they show a landscape of barking, because the labels on the bottles are photos from when we go picking together. So it is landscapes of contemporary landscapes with people who pick in their neighborhoods. So that's one of my highlights from exhibitions. So it's also nice to know that you can compete with, let's say, 18th century landscape painting, you know, formally aesthetically, because I think gallery spaces are quite harsh spaces. You know, things have to be quite clear in terms of their form. To survive on white walls, Um, so it was really nice to see that the bottles, very, you know, confidently, can sit there and just be, yeah, we are we are landscape painting too. So we do with company drinks. We go to Freeze Art Fair every year. We run this bar. And every year we have this discussion, should we go, should we not go? You know, it's the, it's the belly of the beast, you know. It's the the commercial art world. And everyone's like, oh, let's go, let's go, let's go. And because it, it I think within was in Catherine Gibson's iceberg, when we are behind the bar at Freeze, we are there, but in a position where we feel comfortable as traders, as people who sell drinks. I wouldn't want to sell art at free so I'm much happier selling beer. Um, and it's a team decision. And the team wants to go. They they just think it's great. You know, the people you meet, what you see. I think it's also this, while we are also in, in the arts, it's quite enjoyable to have this, like, super international and slightly glossy. And, you know, I can't neglect that, that it's, you're also kind of, you know, amazed and repulsed at the same time. And then this is not... This is completely away from my decision making. It's the team who who want to go every year, and then of course, just because I'm tired of it, because I've seen it for like twenty years, doesn't mean that it's not exciting to someone else. Because that glossiness also, it's attractive. That was maybe oversimplified. Let's say for the for the field of work I'm in or get located you know this like relational, engaged, participatory, collective There was this important exhibition with Tanja Bruguera and Arte Util at Van Appel Museum in Eindhoven I think in 2013 um, with this term Arte Util which as I, from what I understand, the English translation doesn't fully work. It's not, it doesn't mean useful art, it means the use of art. Um, but it was an important exhibition because it explicitly brought the set of practice into a museum context, into a public discourse around what's the use of art. Um, and I think it got misunderstood as art has to be useful, which as no one was claiming, which was saying it can be useful in different ways. And it doesn't always have to be said by the artist what the, will, uh, the use will be, you know, let users use and then see what's the use. Um, so and it's this idea that um, has been articulated by Stephen Wright in his lexicon towards usership. And for me, those are short texts which help me in my practice. And he's saying, let's step away from spectatorship, which for so long has Determine how a public is allowed to relate to art you know and let's use the word usership instead but his is of course a much bigger critique of that the users in general have been undervalued across all all areas you know like you think of the consumer but not less of the user and art you think of the spectator but not of the user so it's a general critique um, of how the person who uses something, it probably, not probably, but is equally important to the person who does something or produces something. So, and then also Stephen Wright, and that's my own experience and from colleagues. Um, even though we love being artists, you know, we, I still really like being in this field, but we also see how it's driving itself a little bit into a niche, you know. Um, so. Stephen Wright talks about redundancy. So art in itself isn't redundant, but the current form of art might be redundant. So then the term usership just opens a route forward to say, okay, let's let, let let's try this. Let, let's use this and, and see what happens. But I think really it's about stepping back and saying, I want this to be read like this or perceived like this or related to like that and open to other usership. So when we worked in Kassel, in the spirit of Lumbung, we wanted to work with local communities or groups who also had like um, collective economies and like this drive towards building community. Um, So we worked with a women's association in one of the suburbs of Kassel and they work with about 700 women, like a really big organization that has been there for 18 years and Um, we enter those relationships, like my villages, and we are quite clear who we are, what we're interested in. But it's completely... And the other side trusts us. There's enough recognition initially that we have enough shared interest and probably shared value. But it's not at all clear what the other side might get out of it. As artists, we, we know, you know, that to a degree we will be able to translate some of the experience into something or we will make a film or a podcast or something. But in that case, after working for a long time, and it was Cafe and Strand myself, um, with this women's group, we, we started drawing them and drawing their economy. And that was just part of the relationship we had anyway. But then it became clear that these economic drawings would be actually quite useful to them. And then they kind of, they wanted us to make an economic portrait of them. So I don't know if it's a good example for usership, but it's something we couldn't predict at the beginning. And then in the end, it was actually quite clear what, I mean, of course, the whole exchange with a group and all the different things we did together were of use and of value. But also at the end, the group said, oh, we want this drawing and we want to keep it, and that's quite important for us. I can now feel that if I describe usership as a starting point, it's easy, and then describing it as, an, as a result. But I think if we wouldn't have the usership as a route, we would not come to those agreements in the end. This happens quite a lot, especially with my villages. Like we, we do something together and then each side will decide what they keep within the RAM of 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 their everyday practice. Like with the international village shop, shops might stay in villages. So we claim then as co-productions a point where we also leave and then it stays and it gets used and appropriated and changed and interpreted on local terms without us. I think it comes down to how you see art in relation to society. You know, if you think of art as this, like, high art, as educating society, then you immediately would put yourself in a position by calling yourself an artist and work with society. You know, then you would immediately think of yourself as someone who has elevated knowledge that others should benefit from. And obviously that's not how I see art sitting within society. I think it's one particular form of cultural production that sits alongside many particular forms of cultural production. I wouldn't have a hierarchy here within uh, between my cultural production as an artist towards, let's say, the cultural production of someone who's a, who runs a business. So with this umbrella name of cultural democracy, you immediately have a different relationship. You know, you see yourselves in relation to other other cultural practices then it's more about collaboration rather than teaching or telling and then of course it comes down to the ethics of relationships you know I mean I would think that if your practice is based around collaboration then um, you have you, you try and have those kind of equal mutual relationships and then you just have to check in your practice if you're actually doing this and I think that's where it's always good to be quite self-critical. Do I really not take more than I bring? You know, do I really not interpret outside of the interest of the other? Do I really represent? Representation is very difficult. But like where do I re do do I not misuse those terms that um give me trust to enter somewhere? Um but, I mean, social practice also um, ha- has an art history and it's it's understood differently in different contexts. Um, and that was nice when Mick Wilson invited me to do the book because also there's not enough, even though there's a lot of research around social practice, there's, like, far less than, let's say, about painting. You know, <laughs> in painting there would be so much attention to, like, every single possible different version of how to paint. We don't have this differentiation yet within, like, social practice as a wider field. So there's both research to be done to also allow a wide range of practices, you know, within what's called social practice, um, but also to claim it as not just social, but also political practice, if you want to. I want to. It's not explicitly activist, but it is definitely political and not yet to not dismiss the social for not being anything else but social. It can also be spatial, you know, also uh, with public works, our work was all about um, the production, reproduction of social space. So then the social is also a form of infrastructure building of um, spatial structures. It's not just a social structure. When I teach art, then, um, of course, you have to make it very clear that the idea of art we have now is a social construct of its time. Roughly the same age like capitalism. But it's interesting, you know, it's a very bourgeois idea. Um, and that. But that's the interesting thing about it, because it's a social construct, it can be changed. You know, it can be used for other things. And I think that's where the coming back to the usership idea... Um, For me, it's still important to have art but also because it holds space for things that are excluded from so many other areas, you know, the freedom to do things, autonomy or self-determination. And because art, because of its privilege, could keep some of those attributes, that's why for me it's worth keeping it, not to save it for us. (laughs) But to keep it as a knowledge and to to open it up again to, like, say, look, this can exist and a privilege to share rather than to protect for the arts. Yeah, I mean, it it is highly critical, you know, um, to assume that art doesn't exist without an economic underpinning. um, Because the way it's going, it then only is accessible to those who don't have to make money, (laughs) you know, which excludes (laughs) a lot of people. Um, So it's super important to talk about the need to pay. But for me, that's more an organizational matter, you know, then museum societies have to think about how do they value, how do they pay. So, you know, that for me, then the art isn't different to the zero hour contract or the person who does, it's a kind of dismissal of certain labor, where art is just one of many other forms of labor that have no value, no monetary value attached, unless they're on the market. So I think for me that's more in solidarity with all underpaid labor movements and not picking out the art too much. Is it recording again? Okay. Yeah. So I wanted to uh, refer to company drinks because I think that's what also of the thinking around this has been done, and I really want to credit my colleagues there. Jarvis Walt Hall and Sean Tuck if I use the word autonomy um, I refer more to this idea that you can determine your life to degree around your interests you know a certain freedom to choose which is again a privilege but quite a touch to the arts which also detached us from society this autonomy it detached us um, And the playfulness, that also comes with it. I don't want to forget that, Um, that, you know, our heart allows us to proclaim. And it can be also quite joyful. As I said earlier in the iceberg, the iceberg already says we are interdependent. You know, there's no independency, even though sometimes independency is really nice. Like with company drinks, we have big independency. The way we are organized, we are quite resilient. We don't rely on a funder. We're actually quite independent. And if we want to be independent, but most of the time we acknowledge our interdependence and um, to everything, you know, like nature, others, the the we, the world. Um, But as a concrete example in the practice, Company Drinks is connected to this bigger network um, of the Community Economist Institute, like quite a big network of people who try to live and practice other economies. And of course, the thing that's so easy to unhinge us and push us off the economic discussion table is, oh, it's so small, you know, like, oh, it's nice, but which is, of course, incredibly annoying. Um, So... And then what's the question, you know, do you grow? Like, what do you do? What do you do? How? This We all know this discussion, you know, what, what what do we do? So, of course, the first thing is to acknowledge interdependence, you know, that none of us does it on our own. We all do it in solidarity and in interdependence with a lot of others. Um, so we came up with this idea of like, instead of labeling us as a, as a limited company or something, we start labeling us as an IDT, like an interdependent entity. And through this, um, uniting through this identifier shows scale of something. And I mean, I think that's the argument in so many movements around new economies that they are practiced on a large, large scale. Just again, the capital centric narrative keeps telling us they don't exist and and they're not successful. So the IDT as a project was a label. To allow us to show our interdependence with others, but um, as an economic idea it's of course that the reality of people knowing how to create livelihoods different is bigger than capitalism wants us to believe. Just the IDT, so it's a little label. I mean, we thought, oh, in 10 years' time this will completely have replaced the limited as a kind of, of course not, because we don't didn't have the capacity. But so we have, there's a Comunità Frizzante. It's a drinks company in Northern Italy. Very, very similar to company drinks. You know, they're friends. They said, oh, do you mind if we use your concept? And we're like, of course not. So that's quite literally quite nice to show that, you know, it's a kind of The idea of the creative commons that, of course, what you do is with with an open source, you know, company drinks is not a protected practice or anything, it's it's open to be used by others, replicated by others. So you're quite proud of the fact that there's a Northern Italian comunità frizzante. And then it's really nice to see what drinks they make because their locality is very different. Of course, you do your work also as a critique of the system. And then, the, and then you don't have visibility, let's say, within the market or within institutions where, that normally secure your visibility into the future. Um, so then you have to think about your own archiving, um, because otherwise the, the, you only have visibility when, when you're there. So you think about, OK, if we really meant this as a critique towards the bigger system, how will it exist away from us? That's when the archive becomes becomes interesting. Um, and then, I mean, my own archive is dissolved. I mean, I've explained this now, that through compost, I only kept the books. My Villages has an archive of objects, collections, things that we have from projects, um, and of course the books and all all the recordings. To allow the practice to... Uh, Live beyond the practice, but we w- we want it to be recognized as, let's say, a contribution to art at a certain time. And if you can't rely on institutions or the market to do it, you have to do it yourself. It's so much easier to archive a painting and a sculpture. So if you don't do that, and if you're not a man, then you really have to take it in the, into consideration how you also how your work and your thinking is preserved. I use tape to articulate, and tape has a nice pace. It's like fast enough to do something impressive, quick, but it's too slow to write a sentence. So it's quite, for me, taping is quite a nice editing device to, you know, with the economy of the means, you don't want more than six words. I think it's also a lot I learned from like feminist networks ar- around me that you also, of course you work within a wider societal context, you work in a, with a political awareness, you know, you work towards change, but you also want to create spaces for yourself where you get energy from and where you feel supported and where you feel together. and. I think, yeah, I learned this from like feminist practices, that we also have to be, we, we need those spaces, not only to see, not only to say we can practice differently, but also for joy, for energy, for supporting each other, for holding each other and then be aware of this also being part of the work. If I talk about me or my villages or any other group I work with, we assume that everybody holds knowledge. And why do we want to share this knowledge? You know, do I share it in order to extract knowledge, and or do I share knowledge in order to build solidarity or networks or resources together? So obviously, it's the it's the later that applies to us. But I think you still have to, as an artist, be careful about that. You know, don't extract. You know. Um, So, yeah, Learn to Act was within a much bigger European network, again with AAA in Paris, My Villages, Brave New Alps and others. We attach the translocal idea to local knowledge. And also in My Villages, even though we say, yes, we want to pay a lot of attention to the particular and the local, we also want to have space for critique because... That's one of the things of villages that they sometimes, they love to think of themselves as the best place, which is always like a difficult moment, you know, like oh, our village is bit. So to, to, to have this translocal element to look at knowledge that's hold, held locally, but bring it in a exchange with knowledge from other localities. And we quite consciously use the word translocal, also to not organise those relationships around identities of the national which, you know, within the European Union this idea of regions is actually quite trans translocal. But I think also with the rise of wanting to force national identity, we wanted to quite clearly use this translocal as a possible international connector. And then local knowledge um it, I mean, we come with slightly different interests. So, for example, Wabke does a lot of knowledge into uh, dairy farming, like the knowledge around farmers who have, have dairy, how this changes over the time, how the cows change and the economy changes and the landscape changes, so quite, quite complex. My interest is often more around everyday economic knowledge, like what's still there is knowledge of like Um, operating away from the capitalist logic so we come with different interests and ask different questions. Um, If we with an economic school it would normally be like four or five days in one place with a lot of guests from elsewhere and then it's a bit like in organizing public programs you just try to have a rhythm and a program that allows for a lot of different voices and forms of knowledge to be shared. So we do have uh, theoretical lectures on <laughs> feminist histories, but maybe not longer than fifteen minutes. And then we would make things together and eat together. And um, but yeah, think of, think about pedagogy from a form of from a question of what's a good form for the knowledge to show itself in its complexity. Like you know, if someone knows how to understand the soil by touching and smelling it, it would be silly to force this person to describe it. And and then, yeah, stepping away from language, you know, from like spoken language to other forms of knowing, sharing and... And those are very often groups where we don't have a shared language in common, so that's also nice. Everybody knows how to use other forms of communicating. And that can be slow. Like, I mean, we we, also, we have different circumstances within the collectives, um, like care, care responsibilities. I didn't have so much time to spend long periods of time in, in, in other places, but Wapke B- 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 does it, for example. And yeah, there's a slowness attached to it of a- allowing this knowledge to show itself on the pace of the knowledge. And then we also have to think about what knowledge do we bring that could be of value. Like I, I, don't, you know, know nothing about farming, for example. But I think often it's recognized that our knowledge, our skills, are around maybe communicating or collectivizing or bringing the translocal element, which is 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 recognized as a value. You know that it also we can start. A comparison of knowledge is that suddenly allows you to see your knowledge in relation to knowledge in a very, very different geography or a different context. Yeah, people wouldn't believe how many different ways there are to make cabbage recipes. <laughs> so that's quite simple. You know, we would have like making food sessions together with the same ingredient where... Almost every community would insist it's like so super local. They're like, potatoes, come on. <laughs> They're like, Ugh. and then we cook together, and then you just see it through cooking that everybody has such a different way of treating the potato and peeling the potato and cutting the potato and cooking the potato. So it's quite basic, but also quite beautiful. We did an international um, crowd workshop in Germany where, you know, my village was so super convinced they know exactly the best way of how to make sauerkraut and then <laughs> I was quite disillusioned <laughs> so like you affirm yourself in like my way is a particular way but you also see that everybody else has their particular way and those are moments of um, enjoyment like to not defend to recognize yourself in relation yeah <laughs> Ecosystem is not the word. I, I normally I I should use it more probably. I'm always the one who brings in the word economy, and everyone's like, uh bore it's so like I, I almost like have a have a I'm like a bouncy voice in this discussion we have internally around ecologies where I also bring in the word economy, and everyone's like, "No, but we mean ecologies." But okay, so, but I mean like, how do we sustain ecosystems? You know, because then economy comes in as a Way of sustaining and maintaining. I mean, I think ultimately an ecological system sustains itself. But still, you have to think about how does this happen, whether you call it economy or something else. Doesn't really matter. I mean, like you, I don't know if it's too late, right? Like we, we don't know. Um, but for some of the work, it also creates new possibilities, like to look back at other forms of agriculture, to, to look back at lifestyles that were more resourceful, to look back at knowledge, like I'm talking about Europe, to acknowledge knowledge that would help us more at the moment <laughs> than let, let's say financial um, specialism. So, so I think if 10 years ago, the work of My Villages in the Rural School of Economics was about acknowledging, knowledge, it has also become more about, that's probably the knowledge we need. So it's more than acknowledging, it's um, pointing to the knowledge, a lot of the knowledge we think will be useful or we thought are useful in the past might not be in the future. And I'm talking for European context, I'm not um, talking about knowledge held around the globe, in, in, in a kind of post-colonial term, I'm talking about the territory I know better, which is which is um, Europe. Um, and then again, with my villages, this is a lot of the work is very close to people who work the land, who have this other understanding. Anyway, you know, they see how soil is getting depleted. I don't. They don't need to read it in the news. So it's also to trust that knowledge. we keep using it like we I think it's mainly my villagers and and I but also company drinks because it's the word that's used in the work so the communities we work with prefer to use the word community instead of let's say the commons or economy or something else so it's a word that in the practice is used by the people we work with as something that we have in common so and that doesn't mean it's, it's, it suddenly becomes simple, you know. I think within the discourse, there's many communities, like we are all part of different communities. How do you distangle this? Like, But for us, it's a term we keep using because in terms of communication, it's the most useful in the work. Um, other terms that are probably more precise or have more criticality, but come more out of a kind of cultural discourse, are not necessarily not necessarily useful. Um, to talk about exactly the same things but outside of those discursive contexts. Um, so I'm using it again more as a kind of shared practice, you know, with others who who use it. And I mean, of course, always being aware that whatever we mean, let's try and, in the situation, say who that is when we say community. So at company drinks, if people say, "Oh, we love the community," like, what do you mean? You know, and then in the case of company drinks, it's normally quite localized um, acknowledgement of very diverse demographics within the local community, and then we can come to this. You know, we. In the situation, in the use of the word trying to understand what exactly do we mean by it and not leave it vague. So I, I mainly use it because it's it's a, for me a term that's easier to navigate two levels of discourse, like one of like lived community in a in a situation and the discussion around um, within what public realms um, do we want do we want to work as artists. Once you call yourself that, and I think it was also interesting that earlier on you talked about your radio group here, how you also used the word community, because it's it's actually quite a good term. It's not too formal yet, but there's a recognition. But I think once you you use it for a group or you use it for yourself, then of course you have to ask yourself, who would I want to have access to the, to this community? You know, in what moment do I become exclusive? And I think. Um, with any like, white-led team, which we are at Company Drinks and I'm being white, you know, my assumptions and a kind of certain not understanding of a perpetuated instit- institutional racism has to be asked. So if I want a kind of, <laughs> not a word I like, diverse community, it can't be assumed, you know. It's a practice of it. And then I think it becomes organizational. If if you want a certain openness, it has to be extremely explicit. And you have to think about how do you make the space safe enough for many people to come together. And at Company Drinks, we don't use the word safe space. We always try to say as safe as possible because there's there's always a risk. You know, we can't provide a safe space. There's always a risk of something happening. But the organizational responsibility then is to be... Explicit about the values, explicit about behaviors, explicit about what's not accepted and also explicit about that you have processes to exclude. Yeah. So if you want to include, you also need processes to exclude, because if there was a racist incident, you need a process to make this person leave the room. But I think most organizations have this, you know, those processes around creating accessible and safe space and excluding or when necessary but I think within projects or more informal organizations also like I, I would think with your group you know you start to become something at the beginning you always need a bit of time just to become yourselves, and then after a while you start asking those questions of why is it just us who else do we want to be here and then you have to think about how to organize that if you want to So I think it's also fair enough to, like, groups who start coming together not to first be concerned with themselves, you know, to find what's in common. And then after a while, think about whether this creates a barrier you want as a group or not. Like, you know, I have colleagues who start setting something up and they're like, oh, God, we are completely overwhelmed by having all those. I mean, you start with an anti-racist position, or anti-oppression position. But they are also overwhelmed by like, oh, do we need all those policies? I mean, I speak from a UK context. And then you also have to like, no, no, just protect yourself, find yourselves first a bit as a group and then ask others. You know, a lot of the work has been done by others. I think that's why this sharing of resources is really important again to, you know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel for everything you do. I mean, I met someone here in, in Barcelona. Monica from them communes, and they're they're quite they're part of a much bigger network of like cooperative movement, and we talked about um, not being involved in party politics, um, which I think is a little bit the decision. No, like do you work within party politics or do you work within other frameworks and networks of other politics? Um, I'm definitely also more with the second. I find party politics, can't see myself, can't find myself, don't have the skills. Um, So if that will be enough, nobody knows. But everybody knows that it's, it's necessary to continue the political work, to resist the far right outside of party politics. with the collective keep it complex make it clear. Um, it was also play but also practice around let's keep spaces where things can be super complicated discussed in detail it was a lot of I don't know, being uncomfortable and like just the complexities of discussions. Let's have enough space to have them but also let's be clear. And so um, in the case of the Remain campaign, and but I think that's any political campaign. And of course, now that we live after October 7th and um, showing solidarity with Palestine, we are reminded that it's complex, but we also have to be clear what our position is. So it, it falls back to that. Um, also coming from, I don't come from an activist practice. You know, I come more from a social social practice. Um, To not assume that it's not political and just social. Um, So sometimes my language normally is not very politicized. Also the language we use in groups is not very politicized. What we do is political. Um, And once in a while you have to be clear about your political position. I think there's like there's an uncertainty on all sides which makes everything feel very unsettled. So it's more to think about where where are areas in your life where you feel there's a certain certainty that it's worth spending time, spending energy. You know, it's it's still where is it still where is it worth practicing what we want rather than feeling overwhelmed. So the work shouldn't just be therapeutic in terms of <laughs> you know. Um, no, it's both. It's about the possibility of the practice, the possibility of growing the practice but also practicing a possibility rather than resigning to the fact that it's not possible. Which is both hopeful and hopeless.